Pull out your Bibles and open them to Acts chapter 9. I think this is the second most familiar uh, story to even unbelievers in the Bible. Any story outside of Jesus probably is the Damascus Road experience with, with Saul. As you're turning there, I, I was looking, I see Aaron sitting right here. We always talk about sending people, uh, but Aaron's sitting next to Trenton, which you already know about because Trenton, we talked about you already this morning. You weren't sitting there. But Aaron just got back with uh, two other of uh, two other members here at the church, students serving in Boston over the last few months this summer. So um, welcome back, brother. It's good to like, have you amongst us. Welcome back. So I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but the traffic in Boone has returned. Um, if you've tried to get from anywhere to anywhere, it's uh, it's significant for a little mountain town. I know some of y'all are sitting here moving from Atlanta or Charlotte and saying, you don't know what traffic is. I understand scalable traffic, but for Boone, it's interesting. And every time, listen, I've said it three on 321, you know, right there while people are turning into cookout, waiting for their cheeseburger and cheddar cheese bites, just Closing lanes of travel because they need a greasy treat. I need to get through traffic. That's my deal. Uh, so it's fascinating because every year at this time, as you do, I get frustrated. Oh my goodness, you can't get anywhere now. I had to go to Lowe's Harder and it was just like the end of the world for me yesterday. I wanted to weep. Now, there's this other side of this that I really enjoy. Maybe not sitting in traffic, but as I look down the road and I see just down 321, and I see the diversity of people and the variety of license plates, and quite honestly, the, the average age of a driver in Boone because of that, um, because of the university is a little lower than most places. But I think about mission, and I recognize that we live in a small mountain town that could easily be slowly declining as generations move away leaving us with kind of a remnant of what was once a special mountain community. But we don't live in that kind of place. We live in a vibrant, touristy destination town where we experience people from all over the world, maybe only for a few weeks or a few years, but maybe they spend the rest of their lives here planting and putting planting roots and making this mountain town their home. The, the traffic to me, as much as I don't like the idea of it, represents the coming and going of people with stories, with souls, longings and wants. And then I really think about it. If we're honest, as much as I or you probably complain about all that stuff here, we exist for them. Like we're here for them, y'all. I mean, to have people in a town where a church is, is almost like a janitor complaining because people make a mess. Do you know what would happen if people didn't make a mess, Mr. Janitor? You wouldn't have a job or a cop complaining because people break the law. Well, let me just say the purpose, your existence, like our existence as church is them. And we so often just fall into that narrative of complaining about people. Don't we? I do. Today, I, I want to broaden as we look at Saul's conversion. And I, I want us to recognize something that, that for us raised most of us, I imagine, in America and particularly the South is that when we talk about salvation, if you think about this, we often refer to salvation kind of myopically, just self-centered, in a self-centered way. Like, I know we're told about our personal need for a personal Savior, which is true, but we're, we're kind of 
told that Christ will save us individually from our sin and we can be spiritually restored to him. And and these are all true statements. We're told Jesus saves in all true statements. But if I think about the way that we talk about salvation in the church, it's, it's a real narrow gauge. What we don't, I think, speak about is the reality that when we are saved, we are saved unto and for the kingdom. And I think Baptists are some of the world's worst. Like just, you know, the every head bowed, every eye closed. It's even taking you out of the community to which you're called and said, this is just you. When we think about salvation, oftentimes it's really us getting fixed. Us getting corrected. Us receiving forgiveness, rightly so. But, but what we actually see is this idea that we're not just saved for ourselves or of ourselves, but we're saved and called into something much bigger than ourselves. To see our salvation as a commission and calling to mission. We're saved for the sake of others. I just want to start build this idea up. Like, I was saved in order that all these people coming and going from this mountain town might have an opportunity to hear the gospel. Because Saul's conversion, when you read it, yeah, it's about a man named Saul. But look at the trajectory that God establishes in Saul's heart from the very beginning. And what we're going to see is this is almost God turning Saul from himself and his view of himself And immediately causing him and calling him to be dependent upon others and called to others in the same calling. And so I'm going to pray and we have several verses to get through Acts chapter 9. Father, cause me to see beyond myself. Forgive me that I think that sometimes I moved from a, an unrepentant person focused entirely on myself to a person who thought I had repented of that kind of stuff, but I remained focused on myself. Lord, forgive us as people for being completely in tune with our needs and completely distanced from the needs of our neighbors. Help me, Father, to see the gospel as not just a personal salvation, but as a communal and kingdom calling. To see that I was saved in order that others might hear and increase your glorious inheritance. Teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Saul the Bible says, was still breathing threats and murder against the Christians, the disciples of the Lord. And he he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. In a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He must suffer for the sake of my name. Do, this is not everything. It's everything to do with the text. Nothing to do with what I wrote down. How do we articulate the gospel and the call to Christ? It's almost like like you need a Tylenol. You have this problem, take this pill and you'll be happy. And the historic call to Christ is like, come and die and suffer. Churches have become like carnivals. Like the most stuff for the most people with the most noises and rides and prizes. And to me, that's very unkind. Come and be the happiest, let's say Disney World, but yet the call is come and suffer. It's not bad. It's beautiful. It just takes a lifetime to learn that. But the historic call to Christ is before us. And I, th I think we ought to hear it. So Ananias does. He departs and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, it's got to be a scary thing to say. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. I just love it. The persecutor becomes the persecuted soon. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. There's a spiritual connotation there. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. But when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. 
But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. But they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road that he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Yes. Look, 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 go back, go back Uh, here. You think, okay, my goodness, um, what a powerful conversion testimony. But he is confronted in his sin. He's confronted by Jesus. But the text looks at verse 17. It is not until he comes back, Ananias lays hands on him, that we see the giving of the Holy Spirit in Saul and Paul. This is an extraordinary experience, the Damascus Road experience, a miraculous encounter. But maybe we miss the beauty of this moment, the beauty that that the call to Paul, the call in the text, the, the giving of the spirit and the commissioning of Saul as we confess in Christ is common to every believer. There is nothing more miraculous about the conversion of Saul than every one of us in Christ confessed to this morning. And I, I want to I dethrone Paul for just a minute. Because if you really look at this text, there is a miraculous confrontation. But Saul's actual conversion at verse 17, what is different for many of us in Christ? We have received the Spirit and we've been commissioned to go. The confrontation is miraculous, no doubt. Literally, seeing God, Christ. But all Jesus is doing in the onset of this text, and so, so just keep in mind this, this idea that we are saved for the sake of others, looking beyond ourselves. I want to I build this a little bit just by watching what's happening just naturally in the text. This confrontation is the miraculous part of this text to me. He's, he has permission. He's on a mission. He has the letters. He can go up like a search warrant to all the churches and say, listen, I have permission to eradicate and destroy the way. And yet Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus. And so the extraordinary part of this story is the way in which Christ confronts him. But Jesus confronts lots of people. By following Christ this morning, you claim, you say He's confronted you. You just think about the way that Jesus confronted publicly the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees in the Gospels. Told His disciples to be on constant guard against it. He confronts false teaching. Jesus confronts and, and corrects directly. He says, woe to you hypocrites to the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus confronts. On one occasion, he came right out and said, you're wrong, not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God. Jesus was not afraid to tell people in the most confrontational way possible, you're wrong. Jesus often exposed the true nature of the wickedness of false teachers by using animal names to describe them. You remember that? He called the Pharisees the offsprings of serpents. Herod, he called a fox. False teachers, he called wolves. And unregenerate unregenerate Gentiles, dogs. 
Jesus corrected and confronted by means of comparison. He rebuked the unbelief of, of the covenant people by singling out the faith of a Gentile centurion who said to Jesus, only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Christ compared the greatness of their unbelief with the greatness of this man's faith and then went on to explain the eternal punishment for those who did not and would not believe. Jesus confronted throughout the Gospels, but then he calls his disciples and he continues confronting those dudes. It's not like, oh, once you're on the team, he's done. He's like, well, you made a good job. Rebuked the disciples repeatedly in order to correct the ways in which they related to one another. Corrected Martha's anxious heart by pointing to her sitting at his feet and listening to his word. He basically said, you should be more like your sister. Well, could you imagine that? Having Jesus to your house so he can tell you you should be more like your sister, like do what she's doing? Jesus confronted bickering men with a child, his disciples. When they argued about who was the greatest, he sits a child in their midst. What a humbling rebuke. Jesus said, confronted his disciples saying, why are you worried about what everybody else is doing? You need to look at your own dark heart. And reminded the disciples over and over and over and over as they sought for greatness in the seat and position of honor that in the kingdom of God there is an upside down economy and pursuit of power. When Jesus confronts, whether in the Pharisee or in his disciples' life or now in Saul's, Jesus confronts the self. The idea that we deserve or ought to be honored for being ourselves. He confronts our motives. He confronts our pursuits. He is taking us out of our bubble where we believe that ultimately we're smart enough, good enough, bright enough, strong enough, and says no. Saul was, my paraphrase, a genius, and absolutely a hero amongst the Pharisees. And he, by God, is going to single-handedly destroy the Christian church because it's offensive. And Jesus meets him on this road and he blinds him immediately before he even gives the Spirit. Cripples Saul and calls him to depend upon other people. You think about this moment. This man on a mission, he immediately cripples and says, you're going to utterly depend on others for sight. Jesus confronts Saul and himself, and he transforms his heart to see beyond himself. And what we know is the rest of the story is Paul's life, who would give his life. He would give his life. Saul would give every waking minute, even unto death, for the sake of others. What is so miraculous about this story is you take a self-centered jerk who believes he's right, even when confronted, 
You take a self-centered jerk like Saul and you humble and break his heart and you call him to live for the sake of others. I am dealing with this myself right now, if you can't tell. I'm not up here just passing on information. Good for y'all to get. And then he, look what he does next. He, look what he provides though, I guess is what I'm saying. Not necessarily next. He calls us to the end of ourself and then he provides. He provides Ananias to lay hands on him. He provides the spirit of God. And he provides a church. A community to help him escape. Look at the text. They're coming at him and what does it say? His disciples came around him. See, we often view a community as a place to be welcomed and affirmed and encouraged in our faith journey. We have like a peacetime view of what the church is. A wartime community, that's one that helps keep you alive. That's where the church is. I'm so sick of hearing like, 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 like how, how, I mean, across the board, not just, not just here, but like, man, how do we, how do we, we, we ought to be encouraging. I'm not saying any of those things, but man, how do I keep you alive spiritually? How do you keep me alive spiritually? That's the question, y'all. So how do you keep me happy? How do you keep me warm necessarily? How do you keep me alive and how do I keep you alive? That's wartime community. And Jesus gives Saul, this man who deserves it not, who were his enemies 10 minutes ago, he gives him this community of faith, gives him the spirit, gives him him a, a people to be dependent upon initially and then ultimately lead to others to equip, protect, and challenge him. That's what Jesus does in this. He provides this in salvation. I'm calling you out of this self centered mission that you think is good and right. I'm calling, I'm crippling you, I'm crumbling you, I'm breaking your image and understanding of self down and I'm immersing you in community. One that you not only will depend on to lead you further into Damascus, but furthermore, one that you will depend on for your very life. They will help keep you alive, Saul. Like immediately into this notion of community, of dependent community, one to keep him alive. That's fascinating to me. Like how, how do we have this idea that we can come to Christ and just leave, uh, leave his bride at the altar? Like we love Jesus, but not his church. How do we believe that we can walk this life apart from community, apart from others? I think it's because we don't have a wartime posture or a wartime understanding of what the community or what the biblical community is called to be. Like we just want to go somewhere where they make me happy and tell me what I want to hear. But what about the people who are going to look out for your soul, even when correction and rebuke are necessary because they're trying to keep you alive. We don't want that in church. We don't want the holiness that comes with us, the correction, the rebuke. We really don't want people to keep us spiritually alive. We want them to keep us and help us fat and happy. This consumerism that is crippling the church is this notion that community is here just to massage our shoulders when we need it worked out. Not a community to keep your very soul alive, to correct you on a path when you're off course, to call you out on your sin when you're rebelling against the God so that you may stay alive. Y'all, come on, amen something. I don't think you get it. I don't think you believe it. I still think you want someone to come here and hug you and hold you and just when when you're weeping just to dry the tears. No, you desperately need a community to keep you alive. You need someone to call you, to love you enough to be honest with you, to say, brother or sister, you're headed down a dangerous route. 
You may not feel like it. You may not think it. In fact, I know you don't. Your flesh runs from it. But I talk incessantly about how to make people happy. And I know the only true purpose of wartime community when the persecution and pressure comes is not your happiness. It is your holiness. Gosh. And Jesus provides him and pushes him into this. And immediately Saul launches. He just listens to what Jesus commands. He just goes. No delayed obedience. There's, there's a moment of learning because this is the third kind of component of this is Jesus' commands. But look what happens. Saul is converted. Immediately he's around these people. They hated him. He hated them uh, before. But soon, verse 19 says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Paul knew the Old Testament. He did not understand the, the Christian gospel fully. I imagine there was some serious discipleship happening in verse 19 for a few days. Later, Paul will write in Galatians that he essentially after this time, he left to be alone for just a minute to reflect on what just happened and then he launched his ministry. But here's what Paul understands. And he, it's, it's like it takes some time later when he would write at the church at Galatia. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So it continues in there, says I left. But listen to what he said. What is the first part of that? When he who had set me apart before I was born. I'm talking about Jesus commanding Paul. I'm talking about Jesus commanding every single one of us who claim Christ and follow Jesus. Jesus commands Paul to go in the world. He'd been preparing it long beforehand. Jesus knew the persecutor would become the persecuted in a moment of time. He knew on that road that Paul's life was immediately in danger. The man who hated everything the Christian community stood for, he became the one dependent on that very community. Just the irony of this. And Paul recognizes that his flesh is at war with himself. He understands that before coming to Christ, he was fully given in to the flesh. And after coming to Christ, he would then begin to wrestle with it. He writes in Romans chapter 7, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Like Paul's journey, his theology that he teaches throughout Scripture is a theology of moving from self to others. To kingdom. He understands that he was not saved just so that he could go sit fat and happy in a building somewhere and raise his hand when he sings when he feels like it. He understands that he was called and he was prepared from long ago. Galatians 1, prepared long ago before time began. He was called to mission. And salvation is this invitation and calling to mission. Drawing him out of himself. And he, he writes about this so eloquently in, the, in his letters that he would later write to the churches. 
Just look at this beautiful nature. This is worth it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. This is, this is Saul who was on a personal mission to eradicate every notion and idea of the way called Christianity. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Holy and blameless before Him. He, holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Now just think about these words with a filter of Acts 9 behind you. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things together to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. Do you hear that? Literally. Offered as the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. We have obtained an inheritance and yet we are His inheritance. That our salvation might be to the praise of His glory. And I look back at Ephesians 1 and I see a more mature, more grown, more established Paul who looks way back at Acts chapter 9 and he describes for us the events of Damascus Road theologically. So I said a few minutes ago when we began, we must reframe our very individualistic, self-centered view of salvation. That that it is though all the lights go down on creation and there is only God. And in a sense, this is true. In a sense. That all the lights go down and, and there is God and there is Seth and no one else counts or matters in that moment. And this is kind of the way we do altar calls. 
Everybody get out of here. Kind of in a sense. And it's just you and him and he restores your heart and reclaims you for his for the praise of his glory and all. All, all this is true, but, but I think the big difference is, is what we see in the historic picture of salvations. You look and there's a room full of people all the time. That, that, that your call to salvation happens amongst and midst other people, in the midst of other people. That you know when you are saved that your heart is, is restored, reclaimed, and renewed for the sake of all those around you. So you... You know that you're called to them. That you know you're part of something. That you know you have a duty and an obligation, not, not dutiful and overwhelming, but a joyous duty, I would say. And brothers and sisters, and a real application of this is our little mountain town. The way that we view the people around us. The way that I view the people around me. Because I think about the traffic again, and I don't know what to make of the cookout thing. I can't reconcile that, like waiting, closing down traffic for cheese bites. I can't figure that out. But it can really affect the way that I think about the people that God has blessed us with in this town, and I can almost like rejoice over it. Because there are so many places in this world where people are just leaving in droves globally and even in the States. People are just getting out as quick as they can. But, but yet it's the opposite here in Boone. And, and we live in a place where people like love to come visit and relax and learn and even get careers and, and they clog up the roads and it's beautiful because there are so many of them coming. And so we can be like the janitor who complains about the mess. Forgetting that if it weren't for the mess, we'd have no purpose. If it weren't for the people, why are we here? And so do we look at them as, as, as frustrating outsiders who are coming in and don't know how to use turn signals or turn their four-way flashers on in the fog? Don't do that, by the way. Or, 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 or people who come to our church and, and, and they, don't, they don't tithe because they're in college and they don't have jobs and they're just, they, just, they're, they're, they just take resources. Or, 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 or they, they don't think like us and they come in and change the way our local elections work. When that's true. They, that's true. That's a problem. I'm not saying it's not a problem. I'm saying... Are we just like still living for ourselves in Christ? Are we really unchanged? Like almost like I'm glad I'm saved to hell with the rest of them? With our actions or maybe our deepest thoughts? Are we saying that? Are we allowing the negative influences and the inconveniences that outside people put upon us to really miss the point of our own salvation that others may hear?
Because this story is, 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 is about a man who absolutely thought he had all his ducks in a row and he was successful and he was on a personal mission. And Jesus confronts him in that and says, dude, I'm going to break you of believing in yourself. <laughs> and, and I'm going to immediately call you to something beyond yourself. I'm going to call you to proclaim the gospel to the very people you just hated. And I'm going to cause you to spend the rest of your life fleeing danger and ultimately submitting to it. Here's my plan for you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. So, so, so prepare to suffer for my name. Because all that, all that self-centeredness you've been living in, I, I prepare to suffer for my name. Because what I am doing in you, Saul, you, before you were even born, before you even cried or wept or even breathed your first breath, I had a plan for you to proclaim my goodness to the nations. What is so different about you? Nothing. And so I... Church, I close with these words. To recognize that your salvation, your salvation is one glorious but yet very small part in God calling together and working together all the saints, every tribe, tongue, and nation for all eternity. Your salvation is not separate or distanced from God's desire and promise that His kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Father, teach us and teach me that You did not save me so that I could get more of myself and more of my way. That You saved me for the sake of others that others might hear. And so I prepare for the mission ahead, Father, by praising my Savior for reconciling me to Him, me to You, Father. And doing so in the midst of community, a community of saints who are called as I'm called to them to keep each other alive. And to proclaim Your goodness until You return not see people as a hindrance or a frustration. God, you're going to have to absolutely transform my way of thinking. And I know that. But to see this place, this mountaintop, just as, as Saul would walk down Damascus and from Damascus literally all over the world, to see this place and this purpose and my purpose and this church's purpose to know that you reconcile me to you through the blood of your son in order that your kingdom might be proclaimed. That you invite us all by the blood of Jesus 
into the same mission. So save those of us in this space who remain still heart of heart and satisfied in ourselves. And Lord, lead us as your church. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Jesus, for the blood, the call to mission, call to action. And it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.